Hey, Tanya. Hey, Elias. So what do you think it would take for you to quit Twitter? Apocalypse? Nuclear war? I'm not sure. So if Elon trains an AI based on your Twitter profile, you're going to stick around for it? I mean, I, I don't know how much the AI future is going to benefit from my cat tweets and tweets about pumpkin spice lattes, but we'll see. I think that's exactly what we need in our AI future. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We're going to talk about privacy today. We're discussing a, a new case out of the FTC and some interesting documents about internal complaints about Twitter's privacy policy. And we're going to talk about a, a new piece of legislation coming out of California trying to empower users to delete some of their personal data. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Tanya Riley, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Elias. So Tanya, you're CyberScoop's privacy reporter. And in recent weeks, we had an interesting case involving Twitter and the FTC. Some internal documents came out about, or internal complaints rather, from Twitter executives about privacy policy. What are former Twitter employees saying about how Elon has been running the company? Right. So set the stage a little bit here. There's an ongoing battle between Twitter and the FTC right now over an enforcement action that happened in 2011, actually. So the, the company then Twitter reached a settlement with the FTC about its different privacy practices. Since Elon Musk took over, the FTC has been looking into whether or not Elon and, and co are keeping up with that. And what they found through these documents unsealed uh, last week as a part of this court battle between Twitter and FTC to get the settlement thrown out was a whole bunch of former chief privacy officers, their chief information security officer, essentially painting this picture of a company in disarray. You know, as we know, a ton of people were fired and laid off from Twitter when Elon first took over. And it seemed about 40% of the privacy program was included in that. Also instances of servers being moved without personal information being deleted, just because everything was changing so quickly. We all remember Twitter Blue, and when it was first rolled out, there were a lot of concerns about it being used to impersonate individuals and identity fraud. Turns out Twitter executives had a lot of those same concerns, but were ignored. So through these documents, we find that a lot of these former data security and security executives that left really had a lot of concerns. And there wasn't enough in these documents to fully say that Twitter has violated the consent order, but it mm. certainly doesn't look good for this ongoing FTC investigation. Yeah, so what's next in this court battle? What can we expect from this? Right. So we haven't gotten a decision yet. Essentially, these documents came out as the FTC's volley back to be like, hey, actually, you shouldn't throw this out because it turns out there are privacy problems at Twitter. Mm -hmm. So we're still waiting to see what the court says. I don't see Elon Musk dropping this anytime soon. And there's certainly some political intrigue as well. Republicans have kind of sided with Twitter saying the FTC is inappropriate in the way it's been investigating it, just like actually came up in a hearing for FTC commissioners today. So we're going to see a lot more drama out of this. So yeah, step back for a bit. Talk to us a little bit about Elon's approach to privacy on the platform since taking over. 
Yeah, so I I think maybe the best word to use would be haphazard. He's made a lot of changes at the company. We were just talking about this on the podcast recently, but for instance, he's changing the privacy policy to include collecting biometrics and using data for AI training. That's normally something you would roll out a bit more slowly and with a lot more user notice, so we could see that playing into this case. We're talking about this 2011 settlement that has all these stipulations for the company, and now there just aren't employees in place to actually enforce it. So it's it's a bit of a mess over there. Mm. It's kind of just trying to degrade the company's privacy function in order to get his way, almost, it seems like. Yeah, you could you could put it that way. Okay, all right. <laughs> so as the data economy rolls on, legislators in California are trying to give users a bit more authority, power to control how their data is being used. Tell us about this latest effort in the California legislature to do just that. Yeah, so California already kind of leads the way when it comes to data brokers. They have to register with the state attorney general. They do have to, if you write to one, they have to opt you out of all of their collection. But it's a very laborious process. You know, there are more than 500 of these data brokers registered in California So if you think about sending each one an email and then sending it again, once they capture your data again, that's a really long process, which is why we have these companies like Delete Me that do it for a service fee. Mm. What California legislators have passed, and the bill is on the governor's desk now, so it hasn't been signed yet, but they've created this one-stop mechanism through California's Privacy Protection Agency so that all you have to do is go through that agency, say, hey, I don't want to be a part of any of these data brokers and all of the registered data brokers have to comply. So it's really a really novel kind of solution to this very difficult problem of data brokers and their rampant collection of personal data. Yeah, so so step back again and tell, tell us a bit about the data broker economy. And if you're a data broker or if you go to a data broker, what types of data can you access on an individual living their life online. Right. So some of the information that's covered by this bill and just is generally very popular with data brokers, we're talking about geolocation data, personal health data. We've seen studies where researchers have found that data brokers collect personal information, mental health, mental illness, reproductive health data, your address, your social security number, your email, your phone number, basically anything that you would do online or even in person is something data brokers can get their hands on. And federal law enforcement are increasingly going to brokers to try to assist them in their investigations, right? Yes, that's a huge issue, particularly with Department of Homeland Security and ICE buying data in sanctuary cities, for instance, cities where they're not getting that information from the city, but they just go to a data broker and buy it. And there's a lot of interest in the federal government in in clamping down that source of data because the argument is this is data that law enforcement should have to get a warrant for and instead they're buying it. Mm. So here in D.C., we've been talking for years about trying to pass some kind of federal privacy legislation that obviously isn't happening and states like California are speeding ahead, writing rules that are really... Writing the rules of the road for... A lot of other states potentially, right, this could be an influential effort. Talk to us a little bit about how you see the California effort influencing potential privacy legislation in the Congress. Yeah, so I think it'll take a while for Congress to catch up if they ever do. But (laughs) what we have seen is, right, one of the big debates in Congress right now is whether or not federal privacy legislation should preempt state laws. And the more these 
states kind of zoom forward and, you know, far outlap Congress on privacy legislation, the more pressure that puts on Congress to actually pass one of these laws. So far, we haven't seen California's many other privacy laws result in a federal one, but I think it certainly Mm. amps up the pressure on lawmakers on the Hill. Yeah. And... Speaking of preemption measures, right? So so that would mean that a federal law would override state measures. Is that right, essentially? Yes. So in the ideal federal privacy law for some lawmakers, that would mean that federal laws would mostly preempt any state privacy law. So something like the Data Deletion Act, which we've been talking about, would be preempted. The good news is at least the most recent version of privacy legislation we've seen in Congress has a very similar mechanism that would be operated through the Federal Trade Mm -hmm. Commission. So ideally, the federal law would be stronger. The argument is that it's not as strong as some of these state laws, and that's why a lot of states don't want to see preemption. But that is a debate we have yet to see finalized. Interesting. Okay. What do you think the prospect is of us seeing a federal privacy law in the current or let's say the next Congress? I think that I will probably leave Twitter before there's a new federal <laughs> privacy law. It's it's not looking good. You know, this Congress, we're already kind of getting to the point where the only bills that are going to get a lot of traction are the must-pass ones. So, you know, there's always hope for next year, but not not looking great. I think that's a great note to end on. So for listeners who are interested in cat tweets, Tanya's at <laughs> Tanya Joe Riley on Twitter. You'll see nice photos of... Reggie the cat. (laughs) Next up on Safe Mode, we've got an interview with venture capitalist Roger Thornton, who I talked to at the cybersecurity conference Black Hat in Vegas about the investment landscape for cybersecurity companies and some of the economic headwinds that cybersecurity companies are facing. That's up next. Roger Thornton of Ballistic Ventures. Welcome to Safe Mode. Thanks. Very nice to meet you and really appreciate the opportunity to speak today. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. So we're speaking at Black Hat at the annual cybersecurity conference, and you're one of America's leading cybersecurity venture capitalists. You're very kind. Thank you. (laughs) That's what people tell me. That's what people tell me. When I started asking around for leading VC firms in the cybersecurity space, Ballistic Ventures was described to me as one of the OG cyber firms. Ah, that makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, what does a conference like this look like? What do your days look like here? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so um, I've been coming to the conference for years. Prior to being in venture, I was a, a builder of companies and products. So I used to come with companies launching new product initiatives, looking for customers. This is the second year that I've come as a venture capitalist, and it's busy, really, really busy. It's a great opportunity for us to meet a lot of entrepreneurs. With Ballistic, we do early stage investing. So a lot of times we're meeting with people that are contemplating the next thing. And so a show like this allows us to have dozens of meetings very efficiently face-to-face. And It's nice to get off of Zoom. Yeah, I can imagine. We're speaking at a time when there's a wave of consolidation in the industry approaching, it seems, is what I'm hearing from a lot of other folks on the showroom floor. And I'm curious if if you can just speak a little bit to the state of the industry right now and and whether this idea that we're going to be seeing a lot of consolidation in the industry, whether you think that's about to happen and, and what's driving that. 
great topic I really feel deeply about. So think about the security market and have, having these strata. That at the very top, you have global banks, telcos, DOD, organizations that have been doing security for years and years and years. Down at the bottom, you have mom and pop shops and stores. And in the middle, you have the majority of all the companies in the world. As you go up in that strata, there are simply too many products, not enough people, not enough budget. And so there's this real pain point of it's got to be simplified. As you start to go down, frankly, there's not enough products built for those customers. Some of the same products that are used by a global bank are offered to a you know, hamburger chain or what have you. And so when you talk about consolidation, different parts of the market have different needs for consolidation. Consolidation can come in two forms. So a large company can buy up five or six cybersecurity companies, piece them together and make them work in unison and, and bring it to the market. Or a smart entrepreneur can come up with a better way of doing things. The product itself consolidates. I am a Big believer in that second scenario. I've been a part of consolidation, both on the being consolidated and doing consolidation. And when you're trying to do it at the organizational level, it's very difficult. You have different product architectures, different cultures, different go-to-markets and what have you. I do think a lot of large companies are going to buy smaller companies. That's been that way forever. But I, I bank more on entrepreneurs building solutions that simplify by taking care of multifacets in one product. And we've got a couple of companies in the portfolio that fall into that category. Who do you think is kind of most at risk right now of consolidation, falling victim to it? Maybe that's not the right framework or way to think about it, but it's hard not to think about it that yeah. way. Yeah, this is probably not by accident the space I worked in most recently, so I, I know it well. But the analytics and threat detection response space has got some giants in it now. You know, Google, Palo Alto, Splunk has always been a really big player. I think some of these areas get to the point of maturity that the larger platform players end up naturally having an advantage because, you know, a lot of the inputs to those systems are actually from their own environment. On one hand, I would think that I don't know if I'd want to go start a firewall company now, <laughs> but think about over the history of time, you know, Checkpoint seemed to have that market all wrapped up and that didn't really stop Fortinet, right? And Fortinet and Checkpoint and a handful of others seemed to have that all wrapped up and that didn't stop Palo Alto and then Palo Alto didn't stop Zscaler. So the one thing about security and it's one of the things I really love the market, it's not as static as the other parts of technology. So, for example, an example we like to use inside the firm when we're talking about this, a lot of people probably won't remember there was a company called Seabold Systems, and that was the company you used to manage your customers and what have you. Along comes Salesforce, takes over. And in today, it's the company you use to take care of your customers. In between, it's not like there was a whole bunch of other companies in that space. You get this market dominance that lasts for a long time. Cyber tends to have a lot more churning and turnover of different companies popping up. And I think ultimately that's driven by changes in core technology. The ascension of cloud computing created a whole bunch of opportunity for new cyber companies. But it's also an indication of the adversary getting better and smarter. So a lot of the basic services that were easy to hack are all of a sudden blocked by a firewall. 
well, I'm going to go back through the services that aren't blocked, the, the HTTP uh, traffic or what have you. So now another company has to come and be inspecting those packets and looks what's going on. And that's the story of Palo Alto. So I think in every segment of security, there's, there's always going to be this opportunity to innovate. To your first question, I think people that innovate that lower cost, lower complexity are going to be rewarded right now, big time. But yeah, if you were to say what, what market feels to me, like I wouldn't want to go jump into it, threat detection and response is pretty crowded right now. Mm. So like many other sectors of the technology industry, there is quite a bit of consolidation at the top happening in the cybersecurity industry. What do you think of that phenomenon? And do you think that customers are, are being well served by these giant players at the top? I think some of the reason we have more consolidation in cyber than in other industries gets to the simple fact that we're still short-handed. We need more people in this industry than we currently have. I am one of the people that's in the camp that we're probably a third of the way through the addressable market. McKinsey wrote a really good paper earlier this year where they say we're a tenth of the way through the addressable market. Let's say we're even half the way through the addressable market. And the reason for that is think about the security at Citibank or JP Morgan or AT&T, one of those places. If you look at what they spend on security as a percentage of their annual turnover or their IT budget, the vast majority of companies aren't there yet. And that would mean one of two things. The vast majority of companies are twice as effective as a bank or they still have investment to make, right? And so because of this fact that the industry is still playing catch-up, it makes a lot of sense for a large company to acquire a firm, if nothing more, but for the talent. And so if a company's doing well and they've got a lot of customers and they've got a lot of growth, yeah, they'll get acquired for you know, a handsome amount because the alternative is the IPO market. But even if a company's done okay and has a small number of customers, maybe not a lot of growth, you still see acquisitions in this market. It's simply because we don't have enough people. And then are customers served well by large companies? I'm going to tell you a funny story. So I spent most of my life in startups and small companies. And, you know, from that vantage point, you look at big companies and think, oh, you know, they're mismanaged, what have you. I had the great fortune to spend the last two years of my operating career at AT&T. And you want to talk about big companies, gigantic company. While I was there, I realized big companies have a lot to offer as well. And it may not be the innovation of the next new super cool thing, but understanding exactly the needs of the customer, having an immense amount of resources to be able to make the customer successful, being able to build partnerships that matter. Big companies, they can add a lot of value. So I'm kind of a startup guy who <laughs> admires big companies too. You can't really throw a rock at this conference right now without hitting somebody talking about AI. It's totally, it's become completely unavoidable. And I'm curious, how are you thinking about investing in AI companies from the security perspective? Let's see. I'm old enough to have lived through the AI winter and was very jaded about its applicability. This is going back to the 90s, right? Yeah, for listeners who don't know about that AI winter, what was that AI winter? I, I, it was the late 80s or early 90s. There was all of this, you know, I say, I'm not going to say hype, promise of AI and what it could deliver and what it could do. And it was premature. And it was based on, you know, some natural language processing work and some basic, it, it was more of like a dream, right? Rule-based models. Yeah. 
There was a very funny, I was working at Apple at the time, and there was a very funny talk given. You worked at more than one big company. <laughs> it, well, it, it, we thought it was big back then, but it was not. <laughs> oh, this, okay, yeah. early days. Okay. Yeah. Before they made the iPhone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, there was a talk that said how to wreck or ruin, how to wreck a nice beach. And the point of the talk was even the most simple mundane task of a computer understanding how to recognize speech <laughs> had problems. And so, you know, if you come from building the computers, it's a primitive machine. <laughs> it understands on <laughs> and off. And the fact of the stuff we built upon that is mind-boggling itself. So when AI first started to appear in security, it was many years ago, right? And it was people using machine learning models to try to detect things, right? Spam filters. Yeah. You know, one of the companies that really, in my mind, brought it forward in a big way was abnormal security, right? So we used to look at email, we'd look at the headers, we'd look at where it came from, we'd look at stuff and try to figure out what was bad. They started to look at the language. And it is, a, is the language consistent with the language that you've used in the past? And so there was a couple of these areas where AI really worked, you know, particularly in supervised machine learning. Probably one of the greatest examples is it can identify objects and images better than humans now. Not for many years has it been able to do that. So you have a picture with a maybe a melanoma or a picture with a tiger or what have you. These models can be trained by giving every picture we've ever had labeled correctly and then something new and they, they can outperform us just barely in terms of the perception. It blow us away in terms of the speed, right? And when you think about that and then you go to, all right, I've got this massive giant network of stuff flowing through and logs and alarms and what have you, and I'm just going to feed it into an AI model, is you didn't have that nice structured set of data. And so for probably, I, I mean, it might be as much as 10 years, AI has been very useful as a marketing tool. But when you dug in and say, well, what data are you using? How are you training it? What are you inferring with it? The answers were pretty minimal, with the exception of a few you know, CrowdStrike done some really neat stuff and abnormal. Now, and, and really it's the success of the LLMs in terms of captivating the interest of the public. And I was talking with a friend not long ago, when he was employee number six at Apple, and we were talking about, you know, this is the first time in decades that there's something that's magic again, right? And so it captivates common people, it captivates computer scientists, it captivates everybody. And that brings forward hope, that brings forward opportunity, and it really brings forward customers are willing to talk to new companies about this. I think there's going to be a lot of junk that doesn't really work, but I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that does. One of the things we know for sure is some of the smartest people in our industry and a lot of the funding in our industry isn't going to go towards trying to make AI work in a big way or defend yourself from AI. Or defending AI models. Yeah. So one thing I'd also throw out, we've probably started last year, now it's at an insane pace, that we would see AI security companies, right? And the first cohort, there's some really great ones out there, help you if you're building AI. Make sure that your AI system can't be poisoned. 
make sure that runtime, it can't be manipulated, what have you. A couple of my non-investments of ours as companies I admire, uh, Aporia, Cranium, Calypso, uh, I apologize for other ones that I've missed, Protopia, a lot of really great companies doing that. Then we swing around, and the next big area of AI is going to be protecting you from attacks that are built utilizing AI techniques and tools. And the, and the, and the most basic version that's a real problem right now is the ability to make a voice clone of somebody. We're at a point now where it's about a minute of somebody's voice. So, you know, this podcast, someone would be able to take either of our voices. Terrific. Call, yeah, no. <laughs> we should we should have we shouldn't be it. doing this. <laughs> we shouldn't be doing this. Start it too late now. They could take that, feed it through tools and platforms. Eleven Labs is a, a really great one out there. And I could call your family, and they would think it's you, right? As long as I didn't, you know, get trapped in a conversation about what we did last summer, it works. And so we're going to need to be able to protect ourselves from a distortion of reality that we've never encountered yet. Third area. And this is probably going to be the biggest, almost every aspect and area of cybersecurity is going to get looked at and explored to see if an AI solution can help. Mm-hmm. Basically, the first principles of AI, if someone's got lots and lots and lots of data, chances are they probably are going to build something neat. And if then data is sparse or ragtag, they're not. But everybody's going to try. Where do you think the money's going to be made? Oh, I'd love to say... It'll be made where the most beautiful, elegant solutions are, but that's not the way the world works. The biggest driver in security, and I think it's right, is where the regulatory requirements are. And the reason for that is there's a small set of customers out there that will buy your technology if it makes them more secure, if it reduces risk. But most customers are going to buy your product or technology if the auditor who shows up next week is going to ask to see it. And those aren't completely unaligned. The auditor's doing that because some regulatory regime figured out that there is risk and they compel you to do it. It'll be in the areas where there's regulatory compliance. My expectation, there'll be a lot of pressure on explainability, bias, drift in models, so products that help with that, data privacy around these things, protecting yourself from the attacks. Yeah, so drift, for listeners who don't know, drift is the notion that models get worse over time or that their behavior changes over time from the way that they're, they were trained originally, right? And then explainability is trying to understand the dis- why the output that they produce was produced in the first place. And then bias, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, right? Out of those kind of three buckets, where do you think there's most promise in the short term? Or uh, short to medium term? Yeah. One of the great things about what we see happening right now is that we've got this big new technology breakthrough. And unlike the past, people are asking, how can it go wrong before it's widely deployed? enormous. Think about all the other things, mobile devices, personal computer, cloud computing, the internet. What could go wrong? Network every car on earth together. And then we dealt with the problems afterwards. So one of the first times ever we're thinking about the problems. And so bias and model drift, and we also forgot hallucination. And that's where an AI model gives you this 
supremely confident answer <laughs> that's utterly wrong. These are all things that regulators and people who have oversight are talking about already. And so if you implement these models, you're going to want to get them right. And you're probably going to have somebody checking and asking for attestation that you've mitigated these concerns. And boy, the industry is responding to these so entirely quickly. I'd say all the above. And because they're the ones that will garner the interest of regulators first. And that's what moves our industry more than... Okay. What's the most kind of exciting pitch you've heard recently? Oh, gosh. Um, you must hear a lot of pitches. Yeah. And, well, you know, let me first say, you know, so I'm new to venture capital. I've been doing it for about two years now. I've invested as an angel investor for years before. But an angel investor, these deals were kind of people you knew or one degree separated. So now I see all sorts of things. And the first thing I got to tell you, there are very few bad pitches, bad ideas, right? They're very, very few. There's occasional and they're out there, but most of them are pretty darn good. I do admit that most of them are pretty straightforward and logical, which is probably a good thing. You know, there aren't a lot of them where you look at something and go, wow, I didn't even think of that before. They tend to be grounded in some real problem. Some of them, though, are very, very clever and very, very funny. I'll mention one. The company's still in stealth, so I'll try not to mention much about what they're doing, but basically had two slides. For the listeners, the standard venture pitch is used 10 to 15 slides. This was only two. And the first slide was they had taken a montage of Microsoft, Google, and I forget the third company's CEOs talking about AI. And in a 20-second clip, they mentioned the word AI 65 times and very emphatically. And then the next slide shows all of the major corporations that have forbid their employees from utilizing AI because of risk concerns. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> done, got it. <laughs> That's a problem. And I want to kind of end on that point too. Great security is about enabling, right? Everybody wants to use AI. Nobody you know, wants to stop it. Well, they can't. Okay, good security can allow you to go do it. And there's an old saying, you know, there's one and only one reason why there's brakes on a race car. It makes it go faster. <laughs> and so good security allows you to move forward. I, I liked that one. That was a... So great money to be made in banning employees from being able to use AI tools. No, no, no. <laughs> Helping them safely use AI Ah, all right. Exactly. Okay, great. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Roger Thornton, for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.